If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians, chapter 1. I'll do the same up here. We're going to begin reading at the first verse. We're going to really focus in, though, on uh, verses uh, 7 through 12 in a few moments, but let's begin and then we'll have prayer. So Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And as we stand before this passage we just read, we're aware of there are monumental, awesome truths being proclaimed in it. We pray, Lord God, you'd be with us this day. Give me grace to preach it correctly. Give us all grace to receive your word. And we do pray you'd write your word in our hearts and minds and open your word to us and open us to your word, Lord, and be glorified, we pray. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Paul started off last week talking, or we considered Paul didn't actually start last week. He started quite a while ago, but uh, we started looking at his epistle last week. And we saw in these opening verses that Paul begins with an acclamation of God's blessedness. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really the theme that runs through this entire epistle. God is blessed. He is the one who blesses. He is wonderful in all of his ways. Everything about him, if we would come to know him fully, which, by the way, is his will, because Jesus said this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Because to know Jesus Christ is to know the Father, because Christ is the one that reveals the Father to us. And as we come to know God through his Son, Jesus Christ, we find out that God is indeed the Blessed One. He is the one who blesses us, and everything about him is wonderful. And so it's okay for us to delve into those blessings, to take a look and see, well, what exactly does it mean that we're blessed? 
Well, we're blessed by God, but what does it mean that God is the blessed God? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in his goodness, in spite of who we are, Paul deals with what he brought us out of, really, in chapter 2. He speaks of us being dead in trespasses and sins. But Paul begins by what God has done, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The, the wealth of spiritual treasures throughout all eternity have been stored up for you in Jesus Christ in heavenly places. You belong to him. Paul says uh, at one point, he said, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then shall you also appear with him in glory. So we have this heavenly treasure. Jesus told us to lay up our treasures in heaven. But then when we begin to understand it, we realize those treasures have already been laid up for us by God himself. When Jesus said that, he meant don't just try to heap up wealth here on earth. Recognize what the true wealth really is. So he's blessed. He's blessed us in every way you can think of spiritually. He's given us life. He's given us peace. He's given us understanding. He's given us eternal life. And he's given us the forgiveness of sins. Well, Paul mentions all these things. And he gives us a knowledge of who he is and what he has done. You know, he didn't have to do any of that. You know, Paul here is going to speak, as we just read, of the mystery of God. Uh, he has let us know in verse 9, he says, Having made known to us the mystery of his will. A mystery in the Bible, as I mentioned before, and anybody that's probably looked up the word and studied it, you know, biblically, it's not something that's unknown. It's something that couldn't be known unless God revealed it. You know, in the movies and stuff, if you watch your TV shows, a mystery, you know, the detectives trying to find out what happened. We're that way sometimes, it seems, uh, but not because we're trying to figure out a crime. We're trying to figure out redemption. But we can figure it out because God has revealed it. If you were to go to one of those TV shows, you'd find out they were based on a script and they were written. And the people that were producing it knew right from the beginning what had happened. So it was no big mystery because it was written down. Now, the reason I mentioned that, maybe that's not the best analogy, but there is an analogy to what we have because the script has been written for us. We have the Bible. There's also God's decree, which takes in everything, including the hairs on your head, the sparrows and the grass and the days of your life, uh, every thought that you think, every word that you speak. God is sovereign over that. He's decreed all things, as Paul says in this passage. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. That means everything is under God's control because he decreed it to happen. And this is a wonderful truth for us. God has revealed that to us. That's one of those spiritual blessings that he lets us know these things. You know, sometimes people balk at the knowledge of God. They don't like the idea. And you, you, I think everyone's aware of the, you know, the, the Calvinist-Arminian controversy. You know, and the Arminians don't like what the Calvinists have to say and vice versa because the Arminian says, well, you know, it's a man is the one that determines salvation, you know, by his free choice. And those who are opposed to that get labeled as Calvinists. They're actually not following Calvin. I believe they're following the Bible. Uh, and they say, no, God's actually sovereign over all things. Man can't make a choice because he's dead in trespasses and sins until God changes his heart. And that's what happens when the gospel is preached. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, we're told. This passage here tells us that we were predestined 
to eternal life. We've been predestined to the adoption of sons. So God is absolutely sovereign over all things. That's, again, one of those spiritual blessings that we've been given to know that our God is sovereign. I can't even imagine what life would be like if God had just you know, said, okay, I'll let you guys live, but I'm going to have you be devoid of any knowledge of who I am. You're going to know nothing about me or my ways. That would be worse than hell, all right? Uh, but you'd just be blissfully ignorant on about the, the level of a rock or something, okay? God didn't do that. God made us in his image, and when we sinned, we, we deserve to have everything taken away from us, and not just to be left ignorant, but be t- left in, under his wrath in total and complete confusion. God said no. He would redeem us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what this passage tells us. So we see these spiritual blessings are set forth here. He says, as uh, for, if you note there as we go through this uh, shortly, in verse 4, he says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. By the way, that means you could have had nothing to do with him choosing you. As he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So predestination isn't a doctrine that merely says, you know, you get elected and then you're saved and then you go to heaven. It's true if you want to summarize it that way. What it actually is, is God chose you, God saved you, God sanctified you, conformed you to the image of his son and gives you everything necessary for that. And yes, he gives you eternal life as part of that. So just, but note, note this, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. It was his will that he did this. Uh, If you go look down in verse 11, Paul reiterates it again and says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, because we have been declared and received as sons in Christ, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's absolutely sovereign. Now, some will say, well, God looked down the corridor of history and, you know, he didn't predestinate anybody until they did something. You know, he gave you your free will. And so he looked down and saw that you were going to exercise your free will. And then he chose you because you made the right choice. And it's like, so you were just a little smarter, a little better, a little more spiritually inclined than other dead in trespasses sinners. And because of that, God chose you. That makes salvation of works, beloved. And that is a complete denial of the gospel of God's sovereign grace. But let's look at that view, because that's popularly taught in a lot of churches, that God foresaw that you were going to exercise your supposed free will and get saved. Well, if that's the case, then God then chose you, correct? Okay. What about the people that didn't choose Jesus? Oh, he knew that also. Okay, so... If I preach and say that God's trying to save the elect right now, you'll say, the people that promote that foolishness, will say, oh no, God wants everyone to be saved. Well, there is a a good desire toward his creatures, we know that. But you're telling me God foreknows before the creation of the world that some men, women, 
and women are never, ever going to accept Jesus. He knows that, absolutely, because he could foresee that they were always going to reject him, and yet he's still trying to save them. You see, the doctrine of election is inescapable. You can't use a, a misdefinition of foreknowledge and then try to get around sovereign election. Because when people say, oh, God wants everybody to be saved, he just knows certain people he knew from before some would be believers and others wouldn't, and so he elected the believers. And it's like, so he's still trying to save the ones he knows will never get saved. You see, it's a foolish doctrine, and it falls apart under scrutiny. And I'm not trying to use words to manipulate things. The Bible's very clear. You got saved not because of anything you did, not because you made a choice. You got saved because God had mercy on your wretched, sinful, dead soul, and he brought you to life, and he gave you the ability to choose Christ. And yes, you did make a choice, okay? So when someone says, well, you have to you have to choose Jesus to be saved, I'm not going to argue with that. The Bible teaches that. You have to repent and believe. But why do you repent and believe? Because God gives you the gift of repentance. That's what Paul, excuse me, Peter said in Acts chapter 2 when he preached at Pentecost. He said, God has exalted him to give repentance to Israel. Paul said to the Philippians, for it's been granted unto you not only to suffer, but also to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's all of grace. God's predestinating grace is worthy of all praise, that he had mercy on us. Someone say, well, what about the others? God has foreordained that some will be examples of his wrath throughout eternity. God is pleased to show his mercy and his wrath. Paul says this in Romans 9. What if God, willing to uh, to show his wrath and to make his justice known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction? Now, some would say, you mean so there was nothing for them they could ever do? Now, let me tell you this, okay? The atonement of Christ is sufficient to save anyone and everyone, all right? The illustration is the prison doors have all been unlocked. They're all open. Spiritual death is not the same as physical death. Physical death, you die, you're neutralized, you can't do anything. Spiritual death means you're set in enmity against God. Paul talks about that in Romans 8. He says, you know, the natural, excuse me, uh, the natural man is at enmity against God, the natural mind. It's not subject to God, or the carnal mind, rather. It's not subject to God, uh, to his law, neither indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The reason why men don't come to Christ, some, the Armenian thinks, well, the Calvinist is saying God pushes men away that want to get saved. Uh-uh. No one wants to get saved. Romans chapter 3 says there's none willing. Uh, turn, to, turn to Romans 3 real quick. We have to establish this doctrine because this lays to rest this foolish idea that somehow men do something of their own. Paul, in writings, writing to Romans, says in chapter 3, verse 9, What then, are we better than they? That is, are we Jews better than the Gentiles? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And then he describes, okay, so what exactly is this condition? There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about all humanity after the fall, with the exception of one person, one man, the Lord Jesus Christ who entered humanity in a, in a unique way by his virgin conception, so he was not a partaker of Adam's sin by imputation, but he was a true human being. 
That's our Lord Jesus Christ. He entered humanity so that he could be sinless. But for the rest of us, as in Adam, all die. Here's a description of what that death is spiritually. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the condition of the natural man. That doesn't sound like somebody that has a free will and is going to choose Jesus. That's someone who's dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritual death is an active state of rebellion and enmity against God. Physical death, you're neutralized. You're not in rebellion against anything. Okay, you don't. You you you're new, you can't do anything. Spiritual death means you're at enmity against God. You oppose what is right. You oppose anything that is from God. Your your nature has been twisted in such a way that you view God as your enemy. And because you have broken his law, you are under his wrath. That's spiritual death. That's what Paul is describing here. There's nothing neutral about this, okay? So that's the condition you were in. So there's no free will being taught in the Bible if you look at it carefully, okay? Um, Man does have a will, though, and God then enlivens the will of his people. So Paul describes this condition. I just want to finish this off here in Romans 3. So Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, because the law by the law is the knowledge of sin, as he's going to tell us. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Now the modern dispensationalist, to talk about another heresy, he'll go, oh, that's talking about the Jews. Only they were under the law. You see, we're Gentiles. We weren't under the law. Well, let's read on. It says to those who are under the law. Okay, so we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. That's not just talking about the Jews there. And all the world may may become guilty before God. You see, the law does a wonderful thing. It shows you your condition. And it's a terrifying thing when the Holy Spirit does that work. When the Holy Spirit brings someone under conviction from them hearing the law of God, and then it enters their heart, and they realize how sinful they are. Change begins to happen, but the first change is often terror because they realize from the law that they've sinned against God Almighty who has the ability to condemn, and it can be pretty scary. And Paul says the purpose of the law so that every mouth may be stopped. That's the whole world. And, and all the world may become guilty before God. That is, they already were guilty. The law, it's like a mirror. You look in, you know the old illustration. You look in a mirror, it shows you your face is dirty. The mirror did not make your face dirty. A lot of people try to avoid the law because it scares them, or they don't like all the restrictions. You know, Usually they say, well, we're not under the law. Well, we're not if you're saved. That is, it can't condemn you, but it certainly speaks to you as a rule of life. But they'll go, well, we're not under the law. And it's like, well, what is it in God's law that you don't want to be under? You know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, you're not to bear false witness. You're not to steal. You're not to covet. Uh, you're you know not to 
uh, have other gods. You're, you're not to take God's name in vain. You're to honor your parents. You're to honor, you know, the, the Sabbath, the Lord's Day Sabbath for us Christians. What's wrong with all of that? You know, as Christians go, oh, no, that's good. Yeah, Jeremiah 31, 34, God says he'll forgive us our sins. But right before that, he says he's going to write his law in our hearts and minds. And it's not so that we can go around perpetually condemned. We've already confessed ourselves guilty before God. It's so that we can begin to keep God's law. See, God's law was broken and shattered in our hearts before because of sin. <clears throat> God begins to restore that, so we begin to love his law. And again, nobody says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. <clears throat> and so the law shows us that we're sinners, and that's a good thing. And we begin to see this. And once you recognize your depravity and your spiritual, you know, that you were spiritually dead, or you are spiritually dead, if you're not a Christian, you, God begins to wake you up to that, and you begin to see, I'm in a bad way. I, I, I'm in danger of losing, you know, what do I do? If God shows you that, that's an act of mercy on his part. Okay, to have your eyes open spiritually when you're in a state of condemnation so that you can flee to Christ. You know, Paul in Galatians says the law was a schoolmaster that shut us up. You know, uh, it's like being, you know, if you're a, a rebellious lamb, okay, and, the, the, you know, you shut up in the corral and the, the corral's on fire and there's only one way out and that gate is named Jesus Christ. You see it, and the law doesn't let you go anyplace else. It's this fence. You can't get out. What do I do? I'm, I'm condemned. You know, like the place is going up in flames. There's no hope. How do I get out? And then you see there's one gate. And that's what Paul says the law does. It shuts us up. That is, it surrounds us. It corrals us to, to one opening, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord gently shepherds us. You know, you say the Lord is my shepherd. He brings you along. He shepherds you. He cares for you. He provides for you. And he guides you. And when Jesus saves his elect, he brings them to himself. Actually, it's the Father that does that. Remember, Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draws him. We like to say, well, you got to do something on your, on your own. No, you don't. You never would. God has to first work. Then we respond. And so we say, well, yeah, but I came to Jesus. I made a profession of faith. I came to him. I prayed to him. Yeah, why did you do all that? Because something changed in you when you heard the gospel. That change is what we're talking about. That's God's, what we call the effectual call. that's based on this doctrine of predestination. Okay, Jesus calls us. Jesus said, everyone who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life. But the scripture is very clear. We can't come to Jesus unless the Father draws us. And if you can say today, by God's grace, I came to Jesus. I'm trusting in him then give God all the praise. You know, don't try to bring in some idea of good works on your part or that you did something that somebody else couldn't do. Give God the glory. Say, yeah, I, I, I repented. I have. I hate sin. I wish I wasn't sinful. I wish there was no sin in my life. I look forward to the day when I'm completely delivered from even the presence of it and when it's just gone in my thinking, in my words, in my thoughts, in my actions. I look forward to that day. But when that happens, he's going to get all the glory and praise because he's the one that started this. That's why Paul says, he who began a good work in you will also complete it. The beginning of this good work of salvation in you was by God. And the end of it will be by God, and in both cases, through Christ, by the Holy Spirit. And so we can give him thanks. 
So he predestined us. So this doctrine is really important, but it generally, you know, it's a little hard to receive until we realize, oh, I had nothing to do with my salvation. The answer is absolutely. You had nothing to do with it. It was entirely of God's good pleasure to create you. And even though you had sinned, to redeem you. Now, God is sovereign, but he's sovereign in such a way that very clearly he's never the author of sin, nor does he ever take pleasure in it. So how can that be? God is a different sort of being than we are, and his decree is beyond our ability to fully comprehend because it abides in him. It's his decree. You know, Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. There are certain things of his decree we don't understand fully. Some have said, well, then why didn't he just decree that there would be no evil? That would be would have been not better, huh? No, it wouldn't have been because that's not what he decreed. God decreed what was absolutely best, uh, which tended the most to his glory. I believe it was R.C. Sproul said, and he might have been quoting someone else, but he said, God could have decreed that there would have been no evil. He could have. But God saw that it was better to decree that evil would occur and that it would be dealt with and that it would be answered by grace, that that was better than not having any evil. And that, that's a pretty satisfying answer. Still, you know, like you think sickness and pain, etc. cetera, um, all those things, you know, is God decreed all that? Yes, he did. Okay. Does that mean he takes pleasure in, in the sufferings of his people? No. Does it, you know, God hates sin. He decreed it, but he hates it. All right. Uh, why? Because he has a purpose. And this is the mystery of God. It's hard for us to get fully uh, grasp on it. That's why we have to go by Scripture. The Westminster Confession of Faith, if you don't mind me reading from it a little bit, chapter 3, if you want to get this, it's online if you don't own a copy. I'd encourage you to read the Westminster Confession. Um, it's actually the doctrinal standard of this church. You might want to, we call it a subordinate standard. The Bible's our doctrinal standard. But the Westminster Confession in chapter 3 says this in, in section 8, uh, this doctrine, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. In other words, we shouldn't just batter it around and make it a point to argue. That men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation, that means your life is matches up to your profession, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. We talked about that uh, effectual vocation is where uh, Peter he, he used as a, as a proof text. Uh, what Peter said is that, you know, make your, make your calling and election sure. How? By following on to obey God and to do his will. Uh, the third chapter of uh, the Westminster Confession, it's a little long, so I'm not going to read it, but um, we'll be referring to it probably a little bit more in some of the messages in the future. The, um, this, the doctrine, if you want to read a theological statement that is filled with Scripture and based on the Word of God, I don't think you can find a better statement than, than chapter 3. When we go to Scripture, we find there, there's the foundation of whatever men might comment upon it. So God predestined all things. But note what it says. Um, having predestined us to the, in, in verse 5, uh, having predestined us to the adoption of sons to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. 
It was God's good pleasure to elect you, to choose you. Blessed is the man whom you choose. We just read that in Psalm 65. Blessed is the man whom you choose and cause to approach you. See his doctrines in both Testaments. To the praise, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. We praise God for his mercy by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. See, Paul understands election is wonderful. Predestination is, is a solid foundational truth. But it's the outworking of that predestination in time that brought us our salvation. God has predestined us to be sons in Christ. And in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins or trespasses. In Colossians, the passage is also quoted. I believe it's Colossians um, chapter 1. Paul makes a similar statement in verse 4. And he says, where here it says trespasses. There Paul used the term the forgiveness of sins. Do you remember in Acts 2 when Peter preached at Pentecost? Speaking of the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the brutality and the murder that he experienced in Acts chapter 2, when, when Peter preached, he said uh, in verse 23 of Acts 2, he said, you know, well, let me read verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate, excuse me, the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Peter here says that Jesus was delivered to the death of the cross by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was predestined for Christ to die for us. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's why God predestined us actually from before the foundation of the world because it's in Christ. So Christ was appointed to that. But no, Paul, Peter still holds the, the men who did this responsible. He said, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. So predestination is never an excuse for sin. And if someone thinks like, well, if God predestined it, I can go ahead and, you know, if I sin, it's because God decreed it. And by the way, human hearts are wicked enough to think this way. You know, if God predestined it, I can go ahead and sin because that he, he kind of made me. Uh-uh, doesn't work that way. You find yourself in hell, you think like that. All right? God decreed sin by his decretive will. His revealed will is in Scripture. That's what you'll be judged by. His revealed will has a lot to say about sin, and the soul that sins, it shall die. And unless you repent of your sins, you can't, then, you know, these men didn't say, well, if God predestined it, then you can't really hold us responsible. That's not what, the way it works. And what did they do? They repented. They, they said, what, what men and brethren, what must we do? And then Peter told them, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means upon the authority of his name. Uh, and you shall receive the remission of sins, forgiveness of sins based upon trusting in Jesus Christ. And so God's sovereign predestinating power never makes an excuse for sin. just want to cover that because this doctrine really can be abused. That's what the Westminster Confession is saying. It's got to be handled with care and prudence. You've got to stay close to Scripture with this one. Otherwise, you can run off into all kinds of foolishness. And so... He's made this known to us. And note, and it goes on, he says, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Our sins are forgiven. 
that means a lot. That's everything. Your sins are forgiven. God won't remember your sins against you. He's pardoned your iniquity. He won't bring it up. That means when you stand before God on Judgment Day, you will stand before him as a sinner who has been forgiven. Because Jesus will be there. You know, it's great. You know, I, I remember when I was a little kid, if I had to go to the dentist, man, it was so nice that my mom was there. I didn't realize it until later, okay? But it was so nice. You know, parents, you know when your kids are going through something rough, you want to be there with them. Okay, sometimes parents can be there. Maybe it's a brother or a sister or a friend. It's nice you have somebody that cares about you that's there. Beloved, when you get to, when you, on that day, when you stand before God on Judgment Day, Jesus will be there. He'll actually be the judge, but he's your friend. The one that sits on the throne of judgment is the one who died for you. So it's going to be okay. All right? Does say you're going to give an account of yourself before him, but you'll be giving an account of yourself to someone who loves you, who died for your sins, who took them away by his precious blood. You're going to be all right. And he does that now. He now stands he's in, in heaven interceding for us, but by the Spirit of God, he's with us now. He is the one who stands with us. When John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, uh, and he is the propitiation, meaning the atoning sacrifice, uh, for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And some people say, oh, so Jesus... That means everybody gets saved. No, it means there's only one sacrifice that, that can save anybody. He's the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. There's no, there's no other propitiation. Again, if you were on a sinking ship, there's one lifeboat. Jesus is the lifeboat for you and for everybody else on board. That's what John is saying. But when he said we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous... The word advocate there is the same word that's used of the Holy Spirit in John 16 from the Greek, uh, parakletes. <clears throat> and it means literally one who is called to stand alongside. That's why the word advocate is there. You know, an attorney in, in a court will sit next to his client. He stands alongside of him. And so when you go through life, even now, Christ is your advocate so he is the advocate for us, and we thank God for that because we're not alone. We don't need to be afraid that when you go through the deep waters, God says he'll carry you, he'll be there. And so whatever we're going through, we can trust him. And we might lose sight of that sometimes, but he never does. And so the purpose of this, though, he says, having made known to us the mystery of his will. Well, in chapter 6, Paul says that the gospel is, is this mystery, that we could be saved by Christ. That mystery is unfolded in other things. Jews and Gentiles being together in one church. Uh, that's part of it also. But that in the dispensation of the fullness of times. Dispensation means the administration. Okay, that's what that word means. Uh, it's not a period of time. It's a manner of dispensing. Okay, But in the dispensation of the fullness of, of the times. That is when all things are completed. He might gather together in one all things in Christ. That is, everything is in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then finally we conclude in verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So your life is not about you. My life is not about me that we should be to the praise of his glory. Our life is really all about Jesus Christ. 
It's really sad that some people never figure that out. It's really sad that some Christians never seem to get that to the forefront of their thinking. And may God give us grace and affect that in us. We can't do that without him working in us. But if we know that's what he wants us to do, we should be praying. Lord, help me to put you in the forefront of my thinking. That doesn't mean you're going to become a crazy religious fanatic. Well, that's what the world will call you. But that just means you'll put the Lord first. That means when you go to work, you're going to do the best job you can do. Why? Because you're doing it for Jesus. That means when you help someone, you're doing it for Jesus. That means whatever you find your hand to do, you're going to do it with all your might. And when someone says, wow, you know, are you a religious fanatic? You can say, you bet I am, man. That's why I make sure, you know, I make sure the products I sell or the, the work I do or the counsel I give is the absolute best it can be because my, my life's purpose is to glorify Jesus Christ. And I want my good works that he brings about in me to show his goodness and glory because I want to tell you about Jesus. It's awesome when we get that to the forefront of our thinking or when God brings it to the forefront forefront of our thinking. May he give us grace. May he affect this in us. And may this be our prayer. Lord, give me grace. If my life is supposed to be to the praise of the glory of your grace, which he says in verse 7, by the way, excuse me, uh, in, in this verse he says to the praise of his glory, Earlier he said, to the praise of the glory of his grace in verse 6. Uh, if that's his purpose, then, you know, it's like when your back's out of joint, you know, and you go, somebody pop your back back in or you figure out how to do it, you know, it's like, oh, oh, man, it feels so good. Some of you all need to be popped, okay? You need to get Jesus in the right place because you're not living according to God's purpose, and as you all know, if you've ever had your back go out, you know, it's not like every bone in your body is out of joint. It only takes one thing to really cause pain and discomfort. And if you're trying to focus and concentrate, just nothing seems to work because you got this one thing bothering you. And finally, when it gets fixed, boom, oh, okay, wow, I can go do all kinds of stuff now. When you're living outside of God's purpose, it's like having a, you know, your, your back out of joint. And that's why the idea of asking God, Lord, help me to put your purpose first. If I'm to be living for the praise of the glory of your grace and to the praise of your glory, Lord, put that in the right perspective. And you need spiritually to put it in place. And thank you, Lord Jesus. And it doesn't make you not focus. It makes you get focused. It makes you do a better job with everything you do, whether in personal relationships, finances, um, you know, your work, everything. May God bring that about. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, make it so. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, bless us now, we pray, and keep us in your love and grace. And we do pray you bring this about in our lives, Lord, according to your good pleasure. Forgive us our sins, cleanse our hearts, purge away our iniquities, and be glorified in our lives. For we ask all this, Heavenly Father, in the blessed name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.